0: Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Hi, it is really great to be back here with you guys again today. Welcome to the podcast. So as most of you know, around the world, Muslims have been observing Ramadan for most of this month of April. From morning prayers before dawn, All the way to sundown, Muslims abstain from both food and drink, including water. Now, today, Syrian American Omeya Atassi, who now lives in Dubai, is here to teach us not only about the fasting, but also the feasting associated with Ramadan. I am a close follower and admirer, and appreciator of Omeya's work through Instagram, her blog, and especially her newsletter, where she sends monthly meal plans. Now, as Omeya says, Syrian cooking is more than a collection of recipes. It's really an approach, maybe even a lifestyle. This approach to cooking is on full display during Ramadan, when women plan ahead and batch cook often huge feasts for their communities to enjoy together. And recently, Omeya really leaned on this approach as she prepared and executed her own elaborate iftar menu for a restaurant there in Dubai. Cooking and cuisine was always an important way for Omeya to learn about and embrace her Syrian heritage. But now it means more than ever. You see, before the war in Syria, Omeya spent summers there with both of her parents' families. But now, it's really mainly through cooking that Omeya can pass her heritage on to her beautiful daughter. I personally feel so privileged and grateful that she's here to share some of that with us today. Welcome, Omeya, and welcome to you, listener. I'm so glad you're here. Hello. Hey, how are you?
1: I'm good. How are
0: you? I'm good. It's really good to hear your voice.
1: Yeah, really good to hear yours
0: too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. You're in Dubai? I am in Dubai. You know, I didn't realize that until uh-huh. just a couple of weeks ago. I don't know
1: how I oh. followed you so
0: long and completely missed that fact.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not super clear maybe from my account, but you know, because I grew up in the US, so I have a lot of like American references, but you know, but I've only moved to Dubai like three or four years ago. So I mean oh, four years ago. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's warm there, I assume.
1: Yeah, it is. It's getting hot actually. And mm-hmm. hot is bad here. So <laughs> oh,
0: okay. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, when you suggested the time of 4 30, mm-hmm. I knew mm-hmm. um I I know that this is Ramadan. I think you're about one week in.
1: Oh, when did it start? I think we're about four or five days in now.
0: Okay, not even a week. Yeah. And I yeah, thought, yeah. wow, four thirty. She's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm imagining you start to drag at four thirty.
1: Oh yeah, but I try to take like a midday nap and okay, all that stuff. So which helps. If if but at this point, I'm kind of like getting used to it. So, but Do there's you, only a few days.
0: You get used to it as the month goes on.
1: Yeah, basically, and then there's like about week three where there's a lull and kind of a little bit of burnout, and then week four you're like, okay, home stretch, keep going.
0: You can do it. You can oh, do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. You know, um, my oldest and I were talking about this. Uh, my older two kids run track, and there oh, okay. are okay. T- yeah, there's two boys on their team um, who are observing Ramadan right now. Do you mm-hmm. say observe or celebrate?
1: Uh, Observing. Okay. Yeah. That makes more sense, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Observing Mm -hmm. Ramadan. And one of them is not um, drinking liquids.
1: Yeah. And he's like- Right. Yeah, he's still running. Yeah, I mean, we're not supposed to, but uh, drink liquids. But I guess, I mean, for some people, and this is something I was gonna talk about a little bit as well. Like for some people, they are exempt from fasting.
2: Mm.
1: um, Like if they have illness or something like that, or even Mm -hmm. pregnancy and- uh, breastfeeding, you're also exempt from illness, but right. are from fasting. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of athletes who continue to fast and they kind of just go through it. It's kind of incredible what the body and the mind can do. Mm. Um, it's a struggle, but yeah, it's, mm. yeah, it's, so, it's hard to imagine that unless you're doing it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unless yeah. you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. All so right. are,
1: are you, do you drink liquids? No, no. But like if fasting, we're not supposed to drink liquids. So oh, wow. that's actually the the harder part, more more so than refraining from food. I'd I think say. that is very yeah. difficult. Yeah,
0: well, yeah. I feel badly even asking you to talk a lot during Oh <laughs> this that's <next> okay. Hour. <laughs> no worries, no worries. So this is this is um this is the first thing I wanted to talk about because mm-hmm. One of the things that jumps out to me about your account mm-hmm. um, in the whole month leading up to Ramadan, and I follow your Instagram account, but I also get your newsletter and mm-hmm. um, I read your posts and everything is you i um I have fasted at times in my life and I mm-hmm. I have found it helpful for me spiritually, but I also totally dread it. and um you seem to look forward to this with like anticipation and excitement. So (laughs) I'm curious, um, what is the trade-off for you? You're obviously making a massive physical sacrifice. I mean, I don't think anyone could argue that, but yet it's a joyful and exciting time for you, it seems. So tell me about that.
1: So um, I think, well, the anticipation and leading up to it, there's a lot of anticipation and preparation and preparation. Mm kind of I feel like saves us at the end of the day when it mm. comes to because you know a, a day when you're exhausted and you don't feel like cooking but you know you have to get food on the table because people have to eat like uh, grabbing something hungry. from the yeah, yeah people are hungry you're hungry you know grabbing something from the freezers is a saving grace really mm. but at the same time I think well like I mentioned I haven't really I well the past I just had my child um yeah, about a year and a half ago. So the past two years I haven't fasted because of pregnancy and breastfeeding. So I think Mm. this year I was especially excited about it because it's something that I can finally participate again. Mm. Um, But I think it's a time to really practice mindfulness. Like, Mm. um, you know, as we're cooking, we kind of get into autopilot a little bit and, Mm. you know, tasting as you go is a very normal thing. Yes, Um, But you almost have to like stop yourself or even you know as I'm preparing like a snack for my daughter, like it's very normal just to pop something in my mouth, but you yes. know, it's, it's, so it's kind of just taking us off autopilot a little bit, mm-hmm. um, and being a little bit more present. And I think, think, um, like mentally for me, like, and I think for most people, like once you stop thinking about food and drink and what you're going to consume throughout the day, like it kind of frees your mind to think about other things, and mm. um, and in many ways, we do connect more spiritually. Like it is supposed to be a time of increased practice and increased prayers. Um, But it's also a time for generosity and and overall kindness. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it does do something mentally in that way.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You use this word um, participate, which to me um, uh, like I associate that with a community or a team. Is there Mm -hmm. a part of this, um practice that gives you a f- sense of community? Is it a communal experience? I guess is what I'm asking.
1: Yeah, I think there is a big sense of community. Like um we know that all the Muslims across the world are participating in this way. Mm-hmm. Um but at the same time, I mean, where I grew up in Chicago, there is a very tight knit Syrian community. Mm-hmm. And we there's kind of a sense of camaraderie because we're a minority kind of um amongst this other cultural majority mm-hmm. and we kind of have to preserve that part of our faith while mm-hmm. there's so many other external factors that might prohibit prohibit us from doing so
2: mm-hmm.
1: um but in the UAE like in Dubai where where i am um it's interesting because the majority culture is muslim so there's a lot of um adjustments that are made to like the daily schedule like work schedule school schedule um, restaurants will offer iftar, and it's a very normal thing. And even people who aren't Muslim will sort of participate in it in that way, where they, mm-hmm. you know, they can they can break fast with you, and they understand when it is and how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, but there isn't, and this is kind of a product of Dubai in general. There isn't as much of like a tight knit community, but that's just because. Most people are observing it that way, and there isn't that sense of camaraderie, mm, if that makes sense.
0: Yes, it does, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah because, mm-hmm. um, yeah, everybody's kind of just getting on with it in Dubai, right. whereas right. you were having a really shared experience um, right. in Chicago. Yeah, right. and even like you said, the adjustment to like I'm thinking back again to my son's friends who, you know, they have a meet today. So Mm. they'll be not just practicing, but racing. And then um, they probably won't be getting home until after dark, you know, and so they're experiencing Mm -hmm. all they're experiencing like the full hardship of like a very rigorous workday and intense race um, on top of all this, where maybe that wouldn't necessarily be asked of them in Dubai.
1: Right? That's probably true. They'd probably move that meet to another time of the day. They I mm-hmm. mean, kids get off school earlier, so they have resting time. Mm-hmm. um yeah, it's it's very different. Well, I remember I think it, it was a practice and hardship a little bit, you know, being in school in the u s as well. like you know we we played actually, when we were kids It's interesting because Ramadan was in the in the winter time. so we'd break fast like at four thirty. Right. Um, Which is very different than it is now. But, uh, I mean, we'd continue on with our normal lives. Like we'd continue playing tennis because we were tennis players and studying and taking exams. But whenever there was something super difficult, we did kind of allow ourselves to not fast that day. Like if there Mm. was a really, really important exam and we needed full mental capacity, those, you know, Mm. that was, that was okay. But, um, but in general, yeah. I mean, I think that did prepare us mentally for many things.
0: But. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. sure, certainly. Yeah. I mean, it's you. You can't deny that the more you um, discipline yourself to endure, you know, hardship, the more you build a stamina. That's totally um, and a resilience that is certainly helpful in this right. life. Yeah, for sure. Definitely, and I, definitely. yeah, yeah. Um, so you said the less that you think about food and drink. The more that you can think about the other things you're commanded to do during Ramadan, things like, you know, generosity, um, mm-hmm. prayers, things like that. So is that your experience that you think less about food and drink? I would I would think you think more about it when you're hungry and thirsty. Uh, or how does this interact, I guess, with all of those other tricky. thoughts?
1: Yeah, mm. I mean, you definitely think about it, but it's not so much like, okay, when am I gonna consume right now? Like, what, how, mm-hmm. you know, it's not about, um, so I feel a certain way. Like, oftentimes we had to, like, you know, we eat out of boredom or we eat out yeah. of, you know, because we're nervous about something or whatever it is. We kind of attach food to so many other things outside of hunger and, and thirst or, um, and so I think when food is kind of taken out of the equation, uh, then you do kind of like, you kind of um deal with those things in other ways, I guess,
0: um, yeah. this is a great point, yeah. and ideally, yeah. by I suppose bringing them to God,
2: right, right those exactly. anxieties or
0: the worries mm-hmm. or right the, the fears mm-hmm. 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 yeah, and exactly. even your own weakness, right? You bring that to God,
1: totally, definitely,
0: I guess um tell me if this is fair or not, like I have an impression from um all that I've read from content creators about Ramadan, which is that it's a It's a month of fasting, but in many ways, it's also a month of feasting. Would you say that's a true characterization,
1: or or not? Yeah, I mean, when you spend all day Mm. not eating food, you know, I talk about I talked about how we don't really think about consumption in the moment, but at the Mm. same time, you're of course dreaming of the breaking fast (laughs) you're
2: going to.
1: Eat after dark after sunset, but uh, so I, I would think that's fair. And there are also very specific dishes that are served during Ramadan. So I think people really look forward to that as well. Mm,
0: okay, okay. So yeah. what what are a few of those dishes?
1: Well, the well, I said feta tamlos is traditionally served for breakfast, but mm. that's the one that we featured. Uh, mm. But. It's also served during the breaking fast meal. So that's one that people look forward to. Mm. Uh, Another one, well, especially with sweets, there's one called acaif, uh, which has two different versions. It's basically a pancake that's cooked on one side Mm. and it's folded. And when it's folded, it can be uh, stuffed with cheese or walnuts and deep fried and then kind of smothered in syrup. (laughs) Uh, And it's (laughs) delicious. Or there's another version that it's kind of folded in half and there's cream inside. Uh, Mm. And that one's not fried. It's just kind of served at room temperature and um, also covered in syrup. So those are, those are the two that jump to mind, but Mm. always at the table, there's usually some type of soup Mm. that kind of help ease your belly into the meal. Mm. This is when
0: you break, uh, when you break fast,
1: when you break fast in the evening. And that's what's that called? It's called iftar. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's usually that's right after sunset. So of course that varies. Yes. at different times of the year. And of course, at different times throughout the world as well. Yes. Yes. You
0: mentioned yeah. how much easier it was in Chicago when sunset at 4.30 than in Dubai. when it's In winter. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And even in Chicago in the summertime, it's at 8.30 at times. So it really <sighs> just varies.
0: Yeah. Right, right, right. Um, so, so sorry, yeah. I interrupted you. You were saying you kind of That's ease okay. yourself in with a soup.
1: Yeah. We typically ease, ease ourselves in with a soup and there might be some kind of side associated with that. Mm -hmm. So we might have like a savory pastry, like a full which Mm -hmm. uh, is one of those really great make-ahead things that you can just keep in the freezer and just Mm -hmm. pop it out, um, to, to eat throughout the month. And Mm -hmm. then there's typically a fatouche salad. I'm not exactly sure why, but that's usually a favorite, Mm -hmm. um, during Ramadan. Um, and of course that's eaten at other times of the year as well, but especially during Ramadan, it's, it's really loved. And then there's always some type of main course, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that could be different. Right. Um, and then, that- but of course, for some people, you know, who, you know, making a full month of multi-course meals or multi, multiple dishes at at one meal might be kind of daunting and hard. So it might tend to be, it might vary, but that is, that is the traditional, that's how mm-hmm. the traditional table looks. That's what, a lot of people strive to do. Right.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so a fatouche salad, I know, you know, in the U S you see that on a menu and I I don't know if mm-hmm. it's Americanized or not. Like what would you consider a fatouche salad to be?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's at a restaurant, even like a Middle East, like an Arabic mm-hmm. restaurant here, you'll always see fatouche salad, mm-hmm. uh, but it's pretty much made up of, it has that bread, like that crispy bread. Yeah. And it has usually tomatoes, cucumbers, maybe a bit of lettuce, mm. um, some herbs, so mm-hmm. like mint and parsley. And then the dressing is pretty much always lemon juice, balsamic vinegar, pomegranate, molasses, olive oil, and sumac. Mm. Uh that kind of which kind of gives it a tart, a tart quality. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that's that's what the traditional douche salad is like. Yeah. And it's always pretty delicious. Yeah. It is
0: so, mm-hmm. so delicious. Yeah. Mm-hmm hmm. I yeah. one thing I learned, um, I guess, I guess from the Middle Eastern way of cooking is the beauty of using herbs almost like a green. And I do that on my normal salads mm. all the time. Now, um, yeah, I also often sprinkle my normal salads with za'atar. Um, nice. It's just so delicious. It is. <laughs> like, why it not?
1: Is. You really can't go wrong with that. Yeah. Why not? I mean, do the same. So
0: why not? Yeah. 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 So, Mm -hmm. um, that's in the evening that's called iftar. And Mm -hmm. again, like getting back to this idea of feasting, my sense is that that's often eaten. Like you said, your mom would make these huge ones and have guests over even during weekdays and stuff. So is that a fairly typical thing to share that meal with other members of the community?
1: I think it varies from family to family. I Mm -hmm. think some people really love like in Dubai, there's also these like huge lavish buffets, um, and I think some people enjoy going out to eat iftar and um, enjoy it with other community members, and then in but then other families kind of been, kind of keep to themselves and enjoy it with with each other. Mm. Uh, so I think it really depends on the family and depends on the person.
2: Mm.
0: Who would yeah. your mom have as guests generally?
1: Oh, she would have like, so she, uh, she, you know, kind of, she would have one day she would have like our extended family over. So that's like my aunts, uncles, and cousins. And then another day she would have, and that's like around, you know, 30, 40 people. And then there'd be another (laughs) 30, 40 people another day where it's like, she calls it like, you know, people that we grew up with. So some, some friends that we've had for a really long long time, like Mm -hmm. people that live close by, and then another day, she'll have another 30, 40 people over that, you know. It's amazing. Newer friends. Yeah. Other friends that she's kind of that, that we have in the community. And uh, so it, it kind of just varies. And then there's also a few times throughout the month, there's um, they, the Syrian community in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, they rent like a community center in in our neighborhood and they, they do like a Pollock style where everyone kind of comes together mm-hmm. uh, and brings a dish. And then, um, my mom was also in charge of that as well. So that might be like a hundred or so people come together with their kids and, uh, they kind of make an evening out of it. Mm. Um, so there's, there's various, there's various ways that the community gets together, but Yeah. yeah, I think people really look forward to it.
0: Yeah. I think the most amazing part of it all to me is that women like your mother, especially like would spend all day preparing food. That they mm-hmm. wouldn't even taste. I'm just amazed, honestly, <laughs> at that self discipline. I, I I really yeah, that's am. True. It's true. Yeah. It's astonishing to me. It's astonishing. Yeah. Um, now you actually recently got to create and serve an iftar menu at a restaurant there in Dubai. Is that true?
1: Yeah, that was really fun. That's amazing. Um, Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah. So there's a cafe, lo- a local cafe that uh kind of they do, uh, they regularly do kitchen takeovers is what they call it. So mm. they kind of partner with different people. Um, and they had reached out to me to do one for women's month, but mm-hmm. I actually was more excited about doing, doing one for Ramadan. And they, mm-hmm. they have partnered with a couple other people as well, mm-hmm. um, just because the, you know, serving tr- traditional food during Ramadan, like I, I just love the idea of doing that, being able to share it with people, kind of mm-hmm. passing on that, that feeling or that sentiment
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, that my mom that my mom does for yeah. her community, yeah. And it was really fun. I mean, I first course I served a soup and um, some fatayat as well. I served, had a cheese one and a spinach one. That's a savory pastry. So dates are another aspect of the of the iftar table. So I warmed some dates in a, in a skillet with olive oil and I uh, seasoned them with some sea salt, and then mm-hmm. I also made these apricots that I like to make their dried apricots that I soaked with orange blossom and regular water and saffron. And then I oh. keep them in the fridge and they get really cool and like plump. And so I kind of wow. served the warm dates with the cool apricots along oh. with the soup and the fosayet. And then I had done it kind of forced and family style. So um, then I had a kind of a take on Fetouche um, where I had you know lettuce, I had little gem lettuces, little gem lettuce and beets and uh mm. parsley and mint, wow. and I also had in there some green olives and uh the bread croutons that I had seasoned with the mm. um, and a traditional dressing. And
2: of the <laughs> <cimax> <laughs> you have and my mouth watering, yeah, it was <laughs> so, that that so
1: salad was good, really awesome. And what's great about that salad, too, I like had the idea of that salad, I uh-huh. haven't actually. That made the salad going into it. I was like, I'm just going to put this on the menu. It's an idea that I have. And then um, when I tried it, when I was there, when I was putting mm. stuff together, I, I tried it and I was like, this, this is really awesome. So oh, I hope yeah. to put it on the on the blog. Yes, I was just really going to really say yeah. <laughs> put this on the blog for beet for beet salad as well. <laughs> so I know there's a few beet salads on there. Well, um, I do, and I have to tell yeah.
0: you, you have like single handedly turned. Our family into beet eaters. Oh, you really, really you really, really have. So my husband yeah. has always loved beets, and I've always okay. just associated with them with those like pickled. Uh, oh yeah. uh, No, but the way you make beets, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and now I'll I'll buy them and just eat them. Um, you oh, know, of awesome. course, like okay. yeah, yeah. So yeah. keep keep coming with the beet recipes. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Sounds good. Um and then along with that salad I had the feta tamos which I shared with you the mm-hmm. recipe. I yeah. pretty much prepared it exactly like that. Yeah. And uh then a main course I had Now this is a lot of food. I was yeah. thinking about it. Well, you haven't uh, eaten all day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um so I had served something called mesli, which is basically like an, a category of food that's um, like stuffed vegetables again, mm-hmm. but vegetables that's stuffed with um, ground beef or I think I had ground lamb, onions that's seasoned and pine nuts. And I stuffed eggplant and I um, had topped artichokes oh. and those I cooked in a tomato sauce. Oh, and wow. Really tasty, Yeah. And I served that with rice. Wow. Um, and then the, and then my last course. So during the pandemic, uh, during lockdown, I had started selling mini donut bites. Mm. Um, and I have since retired them since they're they're really a lot of work.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, and you know, since having a baby, it's been really difficult, you know, it just I have to choose where to, where to spend my time. Mm-hmm. Um, but for this dinner, I did bring them back and I made the donut bites again. And those are really nice too. Wow. Uh, so it's, it was really fun to prepare the menu. And then, um, on each table setting, because they, you know, they said you could take over the space, design the table, how you'd like. So I had kind of, you know, bought some leaves and flowers and put them on the table. And I also had, um, these soaps that are traditional Syrian soap that are made by Syrian refugees and the pouches are handmade too, um, and I had, you know, purchased those and um, and oh, provided wow. that for the guests as well. So, oh wow! What, do you know? Yeah. Do you know if
0: those are available to us in the U.S.?
1: They are. There's actually um, my sister-in-law has a foundation called the Karam Foundation. Oh, and they sell them through the Karam Foundation. And those go to directly uh benefit the Syrian refugees. So I could provide the link for that. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I will definitely yeah.
0: put that in the show notes. That's wonderful.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. Well, congratulations
0: on that opportunity. And please Thank share you. those recipes on the blog. Yes. Yes. Sounds I, amazing. I really hope to. Yeah, oh yeah. yes, please. Please, please. Mm-hmm. please. Yeah, amazing. Definitely. So um that's that's iftar. That's at the end of the day. And um yes. I feel like I read more, more about that. You know, people share their excitement and their recipes, but one thing I've always wondered about is, um, you essentially eat. I, I mean, you do eat breakfast before sunup. Is that true? Does everyone who observes Ramadan do that? And is that like, I feel like I'd be stuffing my face trying to um, <laughs> get, make, get to the end of the day. But my sense is that people kind of just eat a small meal before yeah. sunup. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well so I don't really eat at that t- so the you don't. fasting no fasting starts at dawn like before mm-hmm. dawn um and what what's the people, what's the rule
0: like truly like you can't be eating as the sun's coming up or
1: Yeah there's a, there's a pre-dawn um prayer time and that's usually what's oh. you know when when fasting starts oh, okay. and and so some, so some people eat a little bit, like myself, I eat like a little snack before going to sleep before going to bed. And that's just kind of it for me. Mm. Um, and some people do, you know, growing up when we were kids, my mom would kind of bring like a tray of grilled cheese and juice to mm. us like in bed. And then we just kind of like half asleep, like eat it and mm. then come back to sleep. But, uh, as I got a little bit older, I found that like, if I eat like before, fasting. I, my stomach feels almost like primed for eating more, Mm
2: -hmm. if that
1: makes sense. Like I feel like I get hungrier throughout the day. So I just don't, you know, if in the beginning of the month, I'll, I'll maybe like wake up and drink a glass of water. But then as the month goes on, I kind of just stop waking up. But, uh, and then I did a kind of like little Instagram survey because I was really curious if people like yourself, like uh, if, you know, if they do have this big, feast like breakfast mm. or if, if they just, or if they don't really eat much at all. And um, I found that most people don't really eat much. If anything, they might wake up for water, like I mentioned, but some people do kind of go all out and that, that tends to be kind of culturally specific, but I think mm. it's person specific as well. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's I learned strange. that like Egyptians tend to wake up and eat like this big feast um, with like fava beans and eggs and it wow. looks like more of a traditional breakfast, but um, but most people that that had at least responded to the survey said they don't really eat much.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily a more devout thing. It's just it it doesn't like for you, you just don't feel as well if you do eat.
1: Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. So, well, you know, up to the individual. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and then you cap it all off with um. Eid, right? Which Eid. yeah, Eid. Eid, Eid, okay. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's gotta be like the feast to beat all feasts.
1: <laughs> it's just gotta well, be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there's two major celebrations for Muslims mm-hmm. throughout the year. One, and um, the one after Ramadan is one of them, and it lasts three days. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what's traditionally made, the, the one food that's traditionally made really is are these shortbread cookies. Ooh. And they can be made either with semolina or with flour. And they're usually filled with um, either pistachios or dates. Wow. And so, you know, for us, like, you know, because we have dates throughout for for breaking mm-hmm. fast, we usually have a bunch of leftover dates. So we can use those leftover dates in, in the, we call it ma'amul. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. it's yeah. You so, make it,
0: they're like shaped, right? And they're presses. usually
1: shaped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're usually they're like pressed into like this cookie mold uh, and the molds. So if you make different kinds, like each shape will have, you know, each kind will have a different shape, but Mm -hmm. there's no like specific shape for like, there's no like dates have to be this way, but people have different molds.
0: It's like the fatire, like some people, you know, leave it just open. Some people fold it into triangles. Some people do like a little boat shape. Yeah.
1: Right. Exactly. And so traditionally what, how that was done is that Um, Like all the women in the community, like sisters, mothers, everybody just kind of got together Mm -hmm. uh, to make the fatzai, or I'm sorry, to make the ma'amun for the family. So Mm -hmm. you'd have like dozens and dozens and dozens available, and that's available for different family members every time someone would come to visit um, because it's kind of expected for people to go around to visit their various family members throughout the three days. Mm -hmm. Um, You're expected to serve like Mahmoud with coffee or tea. Wow. Um, So that's how it's done, you know, back in Syria. But, and then it's just now, even, even if family members, even though like families don't necessarily all live in the same place, Mm. it's still, you know, expected to have that at least for your own family or, Mm. you know, it's just, it's, it's become that traditional cookie that everyone kind of loves to enjoy during during that time yeah um and then so in in chicago we would just kind of like all get with those same community members we'd all get together for like a brunch of some sort either on the weekend or on the day of um depending on what's happening and then um i've never actually celebrated it in dubai yet so but this year we will be so we'll see what happens i'm gonna and we're also moving just before so i don't know if i'm gonna have the cookies available or if i'll just you know, purchase the cookies just yeah. to have them around. But, right. You know, we'll right. See what yeah. Right. But. Well, that is I, I have two two questions
0: about that. One, I guess is Eid a time that maybe you because it's really just you guys there in Dubai. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from both yeah. sides of your family. So is that kind of you know, like here in the US, maybe on Mother's Day it's a joyful time for some people, but a hard time for others. And the same with the holidays, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, is Eid a little bit of a hard time
1: for you there in Dubai? Well, I do have some family members here, but so ever since I've moved here, we've always been able to go back to Chicago mm-hmm. for it. And um, this year, just because we're changing houses mm-hmm. and um, because Eid is also falling earlier and earlier in the year,
2: we mm-hmm.
1: uh, we're not able to go this year for it, uh, but we will be there for the second aid. Um, oh, so good. for the other, for the other celebration. So, you know, we'll be there for one of them, but for this Eid, it's interesting because now that I have my own family,
2: mm-hmm.
1: even though our, our little one is not quite old enough to really like form these concrete mm-hmm. memories or anything, mm-hmm. but it, it's, you know, I can just start kind of thinking about like, what traditions do I hope to sure bring into my own household. And yeah. So I haven't experienced it here on our own yet. Um, yeah. I hear it's a bit lonely uh, having, having our AIDS here, but we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: I hope it's a good time. And it sounds like it's gonna yeah. be busy enough and you're looking forward to going to see family that it'll.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. It'll just, we'll be just a like time. pass the time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> past, yeah,
0: Yeah. So there mm-hmm. in Dubai, do people get time off work for these three days?
1: Yeah, they do for the, for the entire three days. So sometimes it could almost be a week off, um, just depending on how those days fall, Sure, if it's on the weekend or the weekday, but yeah, the people wow. get school and, and work off. So what's nice.
2: Wow. wow. Yeah.
0: And when your mom, I mean, I can imagine with the Syrian community in Chicago, these were huge celebrations. How long would it take your mom to prepare for those?
1: <laughs> um, well, typically for those community events, like we, uh we'd usually have a brunch like it's usually out. So I she's not usually cooking for those. Mm. Um yeah, we usually go out for them or it's like a potluck at the community center. Oh. But she does make, yeah, but she does make the mamul cookies for I mean, she spends like days making them. And I do actually have an Instagram highlight uh of a couple of years ago of us making the cookies together
2: oh um, great!
1: and that I mean I think that was like over three days we just and there were dozens and dozens and dozens and she provided them for a lot of people so um, oh. I'll have to link that as well
0: yeah. yeah send that over so we'll get the soaps yeah. and that and then of yeah. course the fatouche hummus recipe and all of yes. your stuff too
1: yeah so
0: um, you talked about, we brought up earlier, like this idea of um, community and how Ramadan was particularly meaningful to you as a kid because it bonded you to the Syrian community in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so Syria is, is your homeland. Is that true or not true? Uh, so my home, that's where my, my parents are from, but they moved to the U.S. My dad moved in 1978. So I was born and raised in Chicago. Um, and the surrounding areas. Yeah. Um, And I kind of just started, and we would go back to Syria in the summertime to visit family and we'd spend, you know, a month there or so. Uh, So Ramadan specifically, I mean, there's a lot of cultural, of course, religious, but of course, but also cultural significance around
2: Ramadan.
1: Um, So my mom would always talk about, you know, for my mom, she would always kind of talked about the significance of these dishes and she always prepared the traditional dishes um, and the food during Ramadan, but also like she would play uh, tapes of Quran recitation. And she would always talk about how her dad played these specific tapes. And she loved to hear those same tapes, um, you know, in car rides, you know, in the house, um, just because that always brought her back to her home.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so my mom always kind of told stories in that way. Mm-hmm. but uh connecting me to like Syrian culture specifically i guess i would think that the way i cook the way my mom cooked mm-hmm. um is part of you know the syrian culture but it's hard. like this is something that i struggle with with mm-hmm. um talking about syrian culture because i know what my mom gave me mm-hmm. and i know the questions that i can ask my aunts and things like that but it's hard for me to speak as and i can hear stories about how other syrians cook and um how they how they, you know, perform these cultural practices, but, um, but I can't speak for everybody, you know? Mm -hmm, Um, and it is, it is kind of like a second secondary source in a way because it is through my mother and it's not something that I experienced directly because Mm -hmm. we never experienced Ramadan, um, in Syria. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Because when you went, it was summertime.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. And during that, during our childhood, there was no, we didn't have Ramadan in in the summer, because as you said, it's a lunar calendar, so it moves slightly every year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, so now it's in the spring. I see. But I see.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. So when um you said your dad came in 1978. When did your mom mm-hmm. come to the US?
1: So my mom's my dad came to complete his medical training mm-hmm. and um he went back to Syria basically basically just to marry my mom, and then he brought her back to to the US with him. Okay. Uh, and then, so what was that That was in 1981 Okay. and uh, their plan was to go back, but once my dad had finished his training, uh, Syria wasn't doing too well economically, politically, and the U.S. was doing great. So they just decided to stay um, okay. and that's kind of how that went. Yeah.
0: Okay. 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 Mm-hmm. So um, since we're moving into this part about Syria, can we stay on that for a little bit and then come back sure. to... Ramadan and food and this like amazing dish <laughs> that yes. you gave us that I was talking to um, my husband's aunt Mary from uh-huh. how I've told you about her. She's Palestinian. Yes. Um, she was very excited to hear about this. Awesome. So, Lovely. Yeah. We'll get back to that. But um, as we talk about Syria a little bit, so your mom came back in 1981, but you guys right. went there every summer. So we're mm-hmm. all your entire extended family was there? Sort
1: of. Um, my dad's, some people, um, so some of my dad's side were in Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. I think his uncle moved first and then he decided to go and then people kind of, that's kind of how it works with immigrant families. Like you just start bringing yeah. people over. 100%, but, um, yeah. yeah. so my dad's side kind of slow, slowly started coming over, but his, yeah, parents and his brother and his his extended family, like cousins and things like that, all stayed in Syria. Mm -hmm. And then my mom's side all was there. So that's um, my grandparents. She has six sisters and a brother. And they were all there. And of course, all their kids and my cousins. So you know, it was a lot of people to visit. We had a pretty large family when we went over there.
0: So what was it like when you spent summers there? Tell me about that. What did you love about Syria?
1: Yeah. I mean it's of course, one of those things that I think about now that we really took for granted, I'd say, Mm -hmm. especially, um, you know, having such a close connection to our heritage. But, Mm -hmm. uh, when we were kids, we really loved it because it was, it was like vacation. We went, we spent time with our cousins, we played in the street and, you know, we had a really great time, you know, as we got a bit older, um, as teenagers, we, you know, we felt a little bit differently about that. That's as teenagers do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, slowly, I remember last time we went was in two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had also, like, I graduated college at that point, and I wanted, I wanted, like, to find a deeper connection, deeper meaning. So I just mm-hmm. asked my mom if we could, you know, because we tend to just go to their hometown and spend the entire. We were going for two weeks at that time, so spend the entire time there. But I was like, you know, I wanted to explore go to the other cities, go to Damascus, go to the coast, you know, see what those are like, Mm. um, kind of exposed to get to different things. And that was a really, um, nice experience. And I'm really happy that I got the opportunity Mm. to do that. But, um, I mean, I just remember going and my grandmother just cooked such amazing food Mm. and, like the house, I mean, we'd always go to my maternal grandmother's house first Mm -hmm. and we would stay there first. And like I said, my mom has six sisters and a brother and the house was like always bustling. They're so Mm -hmm. loud, always in each other's business, so much Mm -hmm. drama. (laughs) Um, And they always kind of just gathered around these, this huge dining table of delicious food. And um, her favorite thing to cook was something called mehshi, which is stuffed vegetables. and, um, if you've eaten it before, yes. <laughs> uh, so yes. her favorite was stuffed, well, she loved to make stuffed eggplant, Uh uh-huh. um, but there's also this very specific, um, it's like green, pump, it's called like green pumpkin or green gourd. Yeah. Um, I know exactly different. what you're talking about. You yeah. know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. Now
0: here, yeah. my, my husband's family, they use zucchini, I think in replacement of uh, okay. it, but uh, okay. yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. These are like, these are a bit bigger than the, mm-hmm. the the baby ones that you might be referring to. They're actually, cause they're not, ref- they're, neither one is really available in the U S mm-hmm. too, too much, but, yeah. um, but anyway, it's stuffed with meat and rice and seasoning and then cooked in a tomato sauce. And it was always really delicious. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. 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 Those are some of my husband's absolute favorites. He loves it's called Meshi, right? Meshi. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I can't pronounce it. Yeah. Now what, (laughs) where, um, what was the name of your mother's hometown? Where was it? Was it Hmm. more urban? Did it feel, you know, ancient? Did you feel connected to this history? You know, in the U S we just don't feel connected to the just millennia of history in the same way, you know, talk to me about that.
1: Right. So they're both of my parents are from Homs. Um and you know, I'd say I wouldn't say it's exactly a bustling metropolis, but it is Mm -hmm. the third biggest city. So Mm. it's one of the one of the major cities. Okay. But not definitely not in comparison to Damascus and Aleppo. Mm. Um So, yeah, I mean, connection to I mean, there are some like there is a basically there is some ancient ruins close by, but we didn't we didn't even really get a chance to see them very often. I think they took us once Mm -hmm. just because uh, going to visit was so focused on family.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So
1: we didn't really get a chance. And that's why I think in 2009, um, when I asked to go see other things, uh, I'm really happy that we set aside time to do that because it's really easy to kind of get sucked into the whole you know, just seeing family nonstop. <laughs> well, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And as part of your, um,
0: so clearly you, you spoke, you speak Arabic fluently.
1: Yes.
2: I'm yeah. very,
1: yeah, I do. But I'm, so my, my husband likes to say, it's just like, you don't speak Arabic, you speak Syrian
2: <laughs> Oh, uh,
1: because there's so many that. different dialects. Right. My, I, the, the way I speak is not, you know, I, I can speak to a Syrian person just fine, but, uh, uh-huh. But yeah, because I mostly learned um, going back to Syria. I didn't really learn in any in much of a formal way. In a formal
0: way, so, yeah. but yeah. That, yeah. thats um. See, isn't that amazing? This is like something yeah. I feel so passionate about. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> one of the. Um... Big ways American education lacks. And listen, my kids are getting a phenomenal education. I'm not, I'm sure. not like just an American basher, but
2: mm. I
0: do feel that um almost every country in the world just requires language learning, like learning a second language very early right. on. And it mm. it opens your mind up in such significant ways. And isn't that totally. remarkable that in essentially two weeks? At a time in a year, every year, you learned a completely different language just because you were exposed to it as a child. I mean, oh, what we could do if we just Um, had a foreign language taught mm -hmm. in... um, you know from kindergarten on, and it would just open once you learn one, it's so much easier to learn two or three
1: totally. And, and I um, think it helps us so understand easy. like our own native like grammar and yes, all of that better too. Yes, yeah. and
0: question yeah. idioms, like it makes you better totally. readers of literature, yeah. better listeners. Definitely. I feel very strongly about this, <laughs> <laughs> and I think, no, partly, I yeah. Yeah. I always feel, I only speak English. I mean, I took, mm. you know, I took a foreign language in middle school and high school, but really, you know, Um, and yeah, I, I feel very ignorant and limited because of yeah. that. Um, Yeah. So I find that so interesting. Your parents, they didn't speak Arabic in the home
1: or Syrian. They did. <laughs> the Syrian no, no, they did. And maybe when we were younger, they spoke it more so. And then as yeah. they got older, they got more relaxed about it. But right. there are some families that some friends' families where you know, their parents are very diligent about like only Arabic in the house. You can only speak Arabic. And I'll say those friends, their Arabic language is much yeah. better
0: than mine yeah yeah right right yeah, yeah they can yeah. read and probably write totally yeah, yeah yeah so
1: um what i was getting what i was getting to is
0: in terms of your education as a child how much mm. you know of course you were raised with so much pride in your heritage and clearly mm. a connection to syria and i mean you had family living there so that's that's a super strong connection how about the history of syria were syrian politics discussed um mm. even this idea that you know your parents like things weren't going well, economically, so they made an about face and decided to stay in the US. Was that openly mm-hmm. discussed? Like, did you feel connected to the country and the people outside of just your family?
1: You know, um, there wasn't really like I think when my parents decided we're going to stay in the US, they were very much like this is home. They were all um, in. Yeah. Yeah, mm. they were kind of all in, even though they wanted to continue to have a connection to the, the Syrian people in the Syrian community in Chicago. Um, and that's mostly who they interacted with, but there was this overall, you know, that Syria is not our home, this is our home now. And interesting. uh, I think it helped when we start, and my mom always says this too about me in Dubai. She's like, once you have kids and once they start going to school and all those things, like that place kind of becomes where becomes your home and and you know, where you feel like you start developing your roots. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the politics in some ways. Was discussed because when we go back to Syria, they they had to let us know like this is not the U.S. You cannot discuss politics openly. Okay. um you have to be. You can't ask questions. You can't. You know wow. any like yeah. So and and people weren't excited about the political situation there. Yeah, and we heard about like you know this person was in prison, and you can go to prison if you talk openly. And we went to Paris once as a family, and we met up with I think my dad's my dad's uncle and he he was in a political exile in Paris and had been for many years so um Mm. but we didn't really discuss much about like the history that's not really something that they really wanted to burden us with or Mm. you know I really thought that they wanted to talk about you know these are questions that I feel like I asked more so as I got a little bit older but Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. yeah
0: So Mm -hmm. let's talk about this, Um, the war in Syria.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, I just feel like it's been on the periphery of my consciousness. I kind of see these headlines like float float by. Most of what I gathered until recently was Mm -hmm. from headlines versus taking the time to click and read full-length articles. Tell me from your perspective. um, And so first of all, is that the reason you last went? Did it become just too unsafe to go um, after your
2: last
1: visit? Right. So basically, uh, so during 2011, at this, when the Arab Spring was happening, Mm -hmm. uh, Syria kind of caught wind of that. The first real like social media revolution, where people would kind of go on Facebook and they'd be like, okay, meet at this place, and they'd start these protests uh, against their respective governments, and it started in like 2010, 2011. Mm um so people started asking for basic human rights freedom of speech freedom of press freedom all these things and and you know a lot of people in Syria were, weren't really expecting it to start there because a lot of people in the older generation were still very feel fearful of the government mm. um but the younger for, generation for good reason
0: based on their very experiences. much. Yeah, yeah exactly
1: um but the younger generation you know and they kind of got excited about what was happening on social media. So they started standing up as well. And initially weren't really asking even for the replacement of the government. They were just asking for like additional gas, you know, more money to buy food, you know, and then, you know, for basic freedoms as well. And then there were these two boys that kind of wrote, they wrote like down with the regime on a wall and they were picked up by the government and, Um, and killed and delivered back to their family like in pieces and at that point that's when they started more forcefully asking for a change in the regime but peacefully you know they were just taking to the streets and protesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Bashar al-Assad he had started you know planting snipers and Mm -hmm. um, and at these protests and imprisoning people and killing them and those kinds Mm -hmm. of things so at some point the people kind of decided to fight back And the people who were part of the Syrian army, the Syrian national army, they actually, many of them defected and they started organizing and recruiting civilians and they called themselves the Free Syrian Army.
2: Mm. And this is about in
1: 2011, 2012. And um, they started making a lot of gains. And, you know, Assad was losing ground like 2013, 2014. Um, So there were starting to be like, you know, rebel owned cities. He was he was fighting back, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the big sieges happened in Helms, which is my parents' wow. hometown. And we actually came to Dubai then because my grandmother was here. And, that, and so we were just watching on TV with them. And it was really hard. Did but, she
0: leave because of this?
1: Yeah, she left because wow. of that. And she basically never went back because she had health issues and it was never really safe. And, you know, when the country is in war, there's not really... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, functional hospitals mm-hmm. or you know infrastructure. Yep. So, um, anyway, where was I going with that? Yeah, so the war. I'm sorry. Um, no, that's okay. So then, in 2013, 2014, you know, there, the the rebels were taking a good amount, and wow. um, so that's when Russia, who was is an ally to Assad, he, and they, they're they're a key ally for them in the region. They decided to help them out, weapons and bombs and Whatever else he needed, and, and then at that point, you know, a lot of people had left. You know, Russia came in, other people came in, Iran came in, and then the opposition kind of at some point got kind of splintered, and yeah, mm-hmm. and and it starts to get a little bit complicated at that point. But mm. yeah, but the start of it was very clear, and I appreciate you bringing that up because I think for many people they get very confused as to how this whole thing started and they get very focused on like the ISIS and the al-Qaeda and all that stuff. Oh, because um,
0: essentially what happened is that left like a vacuum for just every right. player to come in and try to grab totally. whatever piece of Syria they could.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: I so, see. Yeah. So does Assad mm. have control of Syria right now? He does have control
1: of Syria right he, now. Yeah. And I think there are some I think there are some areas that are still there's still some, you know, rebel control, but it, in general, yeah. How
0: how did this, um, I noticed that you said, like when the war in Ukraine started, someone talked mm-hmm. about how triggering it could be. And mm-hmm. you mentioned that it was for you. So tell me a little bit about that. How has this affected your the people you care about?
1: So like I said, we can't, it's really hard to go back. Mm. Um, so for me personally, it's just, it's losing that connection to my heritage. Um, and even when I think about my daughter for her, we don't know if she'll have an opportunity to really connect with that either. And then of course my husband, I mean, his parents left in 2012 and they left their home basically as it is, and they won't really have a chance to really ever see it again. And then a lot of my family directly has, you know, some of them have left, some of them have stayed. So the country you know, as we know it is is just really different. It's um, you know, I've when I talk to people about what they remember, um, a lot of it or what they feel connected to. It's there was this community that everyone kind of saw each other and knew who you, you know, you saw mm-hmm. people on the street, you knew who they were, and you knew the, you know, the guy that owned the shop down the street and you always saw them and there was that familiarity and mm-hmm. that part is kind of lost because you know, people have left and other people mm-hmm. have replaced them and that kind of thing. But I mean, with Ukraine I mean first of all it's so heartbreaking what's happening to Ukraine and yeah. especially because we know firsthand how brutal and horrible Putin can be mm. um, and I think what was hard initially was people comparing Ukrainian refugees to Syrian refugees and there being more acceptance of Ukrainian refugees but you know I think the world should whole wholeheart- regardless of what happened to Syrians or what is happening to Syrians I think Ukrainians should be accepted. And
0: what did happen to Syrian refugees? Well,
1: so it's hard. I understand that the public will, of course, be more accepting of people that they can kind of relate to more or recognize a little bit more. Syria, you know, people can't even really, in general, especially in the West, like can barely even really put it on a map. Mm. So when you say accepting poly- Syrian refugees, like they understand that there's this horrible thing happening. They don't really know what's happening. You know, again, they, they're hearing mm-hmm. about ISIS and Al Qaeda and all these things and, mm. um, and the media. And it's, it's hard to, I think, eliminate that mentality from, um from the discussion for a lot of people.
0: I think what you're saying yeah. is that people were fearful that Western countries the general citizen was fearful that if they embraced Syrian refugees, if they opened their borders to Syrian refugees, that they'd be inviting ISIS and Al Qaeda into their countries.
1: Yeah. Or even, you know, just even the idea of like having Muslims come in, like even if people Mm. say they're accepting of Muslims, um, it's really hard to relate to people that are different than Mm. them in general. Mm. Um,
0: Mm. I've been thinking about this a lot. mm. And, um, I think what I realized in myself, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: because like I said, I feel like these ho- headlines floated by me. You know what I mean? Like right. I can just it, like literally I have this visual of this kind of floating. Whereas mm-hmm. um, Ukraine, you know, hit me in the face like a ton of bricks. Mm-mm-mm. And I I had to introspect about why that is. Um, yeah. Well, it's because I felt immediately threatened with nuclear war.
2: I mean, I, yeah, Yeah. like
0: I felt Mm. that the invasion into Ukraine and the way that Putin was talking and the things he was saying about if the West got involved was like, Mm. whoa, we could literally be on the brink of a nuclear war. And so it's, it's, it's interesting because how much of my empathy for Ukrainian people was really out of a fear for myself Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah, like that makes I re- sense. Yeah. yeah, I really had to um come to grips with the fact that my empathy was in large part selfish. Mm. And um, um mm. but anyhow it's just been instructive to me to say <laughs> you can't just care about something because it directly affects you. You know?
1: It's so hard because we're bombarded with so much information mm. every day mm. and the world is experiencing a lot of hardship and I totally am with you. I, I guess I'm trying to feel empathy for people who uh, maybe aren't as local or active or kind of pick and choose which which causes they're kind of going to get behind. Like there, I feel like there has to be maybe another connector for them mm. that kind of makes it more relevant for them.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think you're right in that some parts it's just human nature. When you feel threatened, right. you you're going to try to do something about the threat, you know? And-, right.
1: and even if people kind of like, okay, there are Syrian refugees and there's people, tra- these people trying to come in. I think a lot of people just didn't really care. Like, I guess mm-hmm. it wasn't that they specifically didn't want them to come in mm-hmm. for many. Some people didn't specifically didn't want them to come in. That's for sure. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, Interesting. but I think for a lot of people, um, it's just, it wasn't really something that they needed to fight for was really on their radar.
0: Um, Yeah. Do you, is so your, your husband's parents are out, your grandmother is out. Do you feel like the rest of your family is safe?
1: Yeah, they're, they're safe. They're doing okay. I mean, living there is, it's hard, you know, the day to day there's, you know, gas and electricity gets cut frequently. There's like hyperinflation and kind of things like that related to war. I think in general, people are trying to focus on living and Mm -hmm. rebuilding and all that stuff. But I think the day-to-day is still hard, but but they are generally safe. Correct. Okay.
2: Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay.
1: Does your mom,
0: so you said your mom stays positive and um, Mm -hmm. focuses on good things. And a lot of that is cooking. You guys cook together a lot.
1: We do. We do. When we, when we are together. Yes.
0: Does she, yeah. Where does she live in comparison to you? How often do you see her?
1: So she lives in Chicago. I live in Dubai and I mean, I'm there last year. I spent four months there and then she came here for a month and a half. So we spend a good Mm. portion of the year together. Mm -hmm. Um, and we do love to, I mean, we found this kind of connection through cooking and especially after I moved to Dubai and I decided to start this blog, my blog to, um, to kind of learn dig deeper into my culture mm. and my heritage and learn more about the cooking. Mm. Um it did really bring us together and uh yeah I enjoy making the videos with her and I also you know ask her ask her for a lot of the recipes that I do share.
0: Yes. Well, mm. I love the videos. So talk mm. to me um talk to me about this dish. What is its meaning to Ramadan? Um mm. and what's its relationship um, or what does it mean to you like as a as a syrian as your mother's daughter why did you choose this dish
1: so um i chose fattit hummus mm. is like mahshi it's a category of dishes that um oh. refers to the uh, translates to translates to uh crumb which is the Oh. like the crispy bread like the the crispy croutons the crispy arabic bread yeah and like fattoush the salad with the with the bread also comes from the same root word um oh
0: interesting just, yes yeah, yeah okay yeah.
1: um so fattie is uh basically the bread and there's uh, usually a yogurt based sauce and mm-hmm. then the main component which in this case it's hummus or chickpeas okay um, yeah, so usually, so my parents' hometown, helps is that they have, they're very well known for their fetsies mm-hmm. and they're known to make basically, they turn anything into fettie. They turn, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's just, <laughs> everything is a FETI. Uh so Which FETI,
0: means it's like this, it's this crispy or crummy layer and, uh,
1: right.
0: yeah, and then, then another, and in like this a yogurt yeah. layer. Yeah, and okay. then chickpeas.
1: Right. Okay. So, um, and, Feta tamas is usually like outside of Ramadan, it's served during breakfast. Okay. Uh, but during Ramadan, it's been served for the breaking fast meal, which is iftar. We basically crisp up some day old bread um, with oil in a pan. And then we make a sauce. The yogurt is mixed with cooked chickpeas and a little bit of it's chickpea, uh, chickpea cooking liquid mm-hmm. and some yogurt. Did I mention yogurt? Some yogurt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And- Okay. Some yogurt and garlic and a bit of lemon juice. And you kind of mix that up and that becomes really delicious. And you mix the bread in with it and then top it with additional cooked chickpeas. And then, uh, this is my mom's, like, she loves that. She kind of makes this condiment of like frying garlic and then adding, um, and then kind of, um, you know, separating the garlic and the oil, like after it's been fried and then putting Aleppo or Turkish pepper paste into the garlic oil and it just adds so much flavor. It's really delicious. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. This is, this is, um, this is such an interesting dish to me because it's like all the components are familiar, Uh but the final product is completely new to me. And, um, and, and and surprising also. So first of all, just going back to languages for a minute, mm. I'm thrown by the word hummus because I'm thinking mm. that you're putting like a chickpea paste on top of this bread, but that's right. not the case. Hummus just means chickpeas. And so the chickpeas right. stay almost whole, correct?
1: Right. And they yeah. also play a role in the sauce, the yogurt-based sauce as well. But yeah, I mean, it's, you kind of have chickpeas throughout, but, um, that's really what feta the means. is like the crumb, um, is the dish with chickpeas. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. And then the main creaminess of the dish is not mashed chickpeas. The main creaminess comes from this yogurt,
1: right? The yogurt with like, instead of using tiny, we might put a little bit of tiny to check. Mm. Did I mention you before? you sent
0: me a yeah. tablespoon of tahini yeah.
1: yeah 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 so just a little bit so in regular um, hummus and the spread that you might be familiar with mm. um we add tahini is like is the creamy component of that dip along with the mashed chickpeas mm-hmm. uh, while in this case we put a little bit of tiny but it's it mostly comes from the yogurt so the sauce yeah. is a little bit looser than you know that that the, the, the yeah. hummus like dip or paste would be Um, so that makes it more of like sauce, like, as opposed to paste, like,
0: yes, yes, exactly. Okay. And then do you, I'm curious, do you ever make your own yogurt?
1: Make my own yogurt. I don't make my own yogurt because what we have here is total I mean, it works great. I've made yeah. my own Lebne before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can so you Lebne- tell me
0: about that? I am yeah. like, you, Lebne just seems like thick <laughs> thick yogurt.
1: Basically, I, but it does, it, there's a slight fermentation process to it. So oh, it is a okay. bit tangier as well because- Um, And that's also something that we add into the yogurt mixture because um, it does add, it's not everybody adds it, but my mom taught me to add it because it does add um, a bit of complexity Oh, because it's a bit, it's tangy. It's thick yogurt, but it's also tangy. It's um, because of that fermentation process. Yeah. 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 We love it.
0: Okay. Okay. So, so you're telling me that Lebna is like fundamentally different than yogurt because yogurt is milk and then it has like this bacteria culture in it. Mm. But Lebna, I always thought Lebna was just thick yogurt, but you're saying, no, it has this additional component of it's been fermented.
2: Well, it's, I
1: mean, it is basically thickened yogurt, but in the process of uh thickening it. So basically how we thicken it is um, you can take just like a tub of yogurt. My mom uh-huh. uses a Bulgarian yogurt in the U S uh, oh. makes really delicious. Lemonade. It's like very creamy. It's really nice. Uh-huh. Um, and she adds like in this tub, she adds a couple teaspoons of salt. And then she lines a colander with maybe three layers of paper towel Yeah.
2: Uh-huh.
1: and sets the colander over a bowl and uh-huh. then just dumps the yogurt and salt in the bowl and just uh, in the colander and lets it sit out for about a day. Yeah. So, um and it just sits out on the counter. So, the, while that's happening, yeah, the, the bacteria is kind of just reacting with the air and mm-hmm. it is straining, so it is becoming thicker, but it's also slightly fermenting.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah, this is this is super this is super interesting to me. So, in this case, just for flavor, you could add a little bit of leptova, but like if you tried to use 2 cups of that, that would be totally wrong for this dish. You're, right. And yeah. also
1: because it is thicker so you don't want you don't want it too thick so yeah Yeah. um so it does it does affect the texture as well but okay okay Mm -hmm.
0: yeah that sounds really interesting so there's Mm -hmm. a lot of um how how early this actually leads us back we're going to go full circle to Ramadan and then we'll wrap it up um okay but this actually even though this is like a in some ways, like a pretty quick dish. And it's like, kind of uh-huh. like a make ahead dish. You really do have to plan ahead for this because there's several things, um, like your pita needs to be kind of dry. It's best like a day old, right? Um, yeah. You want to soak your chickpeas. So when do you tell me about making this like start to finish? How would, how would you do it? When would you start? You know what I mean? Like yeah, you would cram it yeah, into yeah, totally. an hour and tell me, tell me how you would do this start to right. finish. How would you so, plan it out?
1: So that's the interesting thing about Arabic dishes mm. or Syrian dishes is that they're kind of rarely done from start to finish in mm-hmm. one sitting. Mm-hmm. And that's also another challenge in writing them because
2: mm-hmm. if,
1: if, for many of them, if you sat to do it in one sitting, it takes a really long time. Um, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I, I, oftentimes, I mean, when you know people think of like fethi, um as really simple because it's, it's a lot of components, but yep. Uh, Once you sit down to serve it, you just kind of put it all together and and put it out um, when all the components really can be prepped ahead of time. Yeah. The way I would do it is I would have the fried bread. um, And when you fry bread, it really can keep for a really long time. So for something like Ramadan, like thinking about planning and prepping ahead, like some people might um, fry bread for the entire month and just Mm. have it sitting out on the counter for like the fat and the Oh, wow.
2: So
0: if you fry um, it, it will keep for a whole month. It
1: keeps. Yeah. Yeah. It will keep. Um, so you can, I mean, but if you want to just do it like the same day, that's also fine.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, and then, you know, maybe a day or two before, uh, cooking the dish, I would soak the chickpeas overnight. And then the next day I would, Cook the chickpeas and make the sauce, and then of course, I would have my garlic, Aleppo pepper garlic oil too.
0: Yeah, I'm a hundred percent making that garlic oil.
1: Oh, it's <laughs> That's good! Amazing. It's so good. It's so so good. It's yeah, like, I think it's my mom's secret weapon. Honestly. Yeah. It's so
0: really yeah. Now, and just for people listening, if they read this recipe, um, mm. I've used Aleppo pepper before. I've never yeah. heard of an Aleppo paste, but you said there's one that we can get on Amazon.
1: Yeah. So. Aleppo pepper paste—it comes from the same pepper.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, in northern,
1: yeah. yeah, so in northern Syria and southern Turkey, uh, there is this slender red pepper, the or the Aleppo pepper or Turkish pepper. It's, just, it's the red. They call it the red pepper, mm. um, and it varies in spice level; it can be sweet to mild to very spicy. Mm. And uh, when it's cultivated, it can be dried and ground into flakes, um, okay. which you might be more familiar with, or it could be dried. It's always dried in the sun, um, dried and pounded into a paste and preserved with salt. Okay. And that way you can use the seasoning, um, throughout the year. Mm-hmm. And it's one of my favorite seasonings, A Aleppo pepper paste. I put it in soups. I add it to marinades, like for chicken. Mm-hmm. I add it to, you know, sauce for lamb. I, you mm-hmm. know, I use it on vegetables. I, I use it and mm-hmm. use it on fish as well. It's, um, I use it basically everywhere. Um, in Dubai, I can get some, I, there's a shop that I go to that gets it directly from Aleppo, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the U S that's, that's a bit hard, harder. So the one that's commercially available mm. is a Turkish, the Turkish variety, which is the same pepper really, but, yeah. um, it's called Sarah it's, and it's, it's, it serves its purpose. It, it, it definitely works. Okay. Um, yeah, but that's yeah. the one that's more readily available, I'd say.
0: Okay. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll get that. So, so then we'll just, we'll just wrap it, wrap it up with this because we talked about planning ahead, kind of making this dish Mm -hmm. ahead. How much of, um, observing Ramadan has to do with planning ahead?
1: Oh yeah. Um, I mean, you don't have to plan ahead. Yeah. It's just the way that people, you know, especially when they're trying to feed a household, that's just kind of how they've done it. Um, and I'm really, you know, on the blog, I'm really trying to emulate or replicate traditional Syrian cooking. And the Mm -hmm. best way to do that is really by planning ahead. Has starting this blog changed your
0: approach to cooking? Has it made you cook more like a Syrian woman, which means planning (laughs) ahead and doing things, you know, like I noticed you were prepping your herbs the other day, or is that something you did naturally?
1: no, I mean, before I started the blog, I I really did, I was the person who kind of just set out with a recipe and cooked yeah. from start to finish. Like I chopped my onions for the recipe. I had my garlic, and you know, yeah. went that way. And so, and I think in general, by nature, I am a planner. So, mm. um, watching my mom, and my mom is a hyper planner. So, mm. uh, watching my mom how she cooks and uh, trying to replicate that, and then you know all of those things, I think it definitely has made me more of a planner. Mm -hmm. And I also realized that like the way, um, a um, traditional, you know, a woman who cooks traditional food, uh, I mean the planning, I feel like just makes it more practical because a lot of the dishes are really repetitive and they're Mm -hmm. they mix and match a lot of the same ingredients. Yes, So if you can just kind of batch prepare, like all your sauteed onions or all your ground beef or all your, you know, all at once. Um, it just saves a lot of time and energy. Um, so that's kind of how that's, that's why it's generally done. It's, um, I feel like it's more economical. It's more like, that's just, you know,
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: and they use a lot of the same spices, you know, all of those things. And it's a lot of the same cooking techniques for different dishes, but, Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really quite simple because, you know, when I was first learning Syrian cooking, I feel like, because I watched my mom do it and she was so good at it, it was very intimidating mm-hmm. and I didn't know where to start. And it was very hard for me because it wasn't written out. Like, this is what you need to do from start to finish in order to learn how to cook Syrian food. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't like, like I could pick up a cookbook or pick up right. a magazine where someone would teach me. Yes. Um, so I, it was very overwhelming at first, but then once I kind of figured out that it's a lot of the same processes, a lot of the same ingredients, um, yeah. it became much simpler and much easier for me.
0: Yeah, I think you make a really good point, which is that mm-hmm. learning to cook Syrian food and probably a lot of other global cuisines is a mm-hmm. lot more than just picking up a recipe and reading it because it... it cooking for large families for events like iftar parties things like that mm. is um it's 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 a way of life and a right. recipe really can't capture that and so totally. it's 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 i think one of the reasons why it's fun and instructive to follow you is because mm. um again we're not just learning you made such a good point that you can't just write a recipe. Like I'm already thinking of, I put this on my blog and it's like prep time, 24 hours, (laughs) you know, people look at a recipe and like, is that a typo? No, it's not. (laughs) This is a way of life. And to really cook the recipe properly, you have to immerse yourself and understand the way of life. And I think it's, I think it's really great that you're doing this. Um, and you're not just totally trying to modernize or Americanize these recipes. You're really trying to communicate (laughs) this, um, approach to cooking, which really does encapsulate an approach to culture. You know, that you're not just eating a meal to be done with your fast, you're inviting Mm -hmm. your entire close-knit Syrian community in Chicago to do that with you. um, I I think that's super, super important. And that's why it's important to not just read recipes, but to really follow you and to, um, get everything you have to offer. So well, yeah. Tricky. Yeah. Yeah. Tell everyone where to find you and, um, and your monthly meal plans.
1: Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at Omeya.atasi yeah. and I'm on Pinterest and TikTok. just started TikTok. uh, really not as active on Pinterest, but Omeya cooks and my blog is Omeya Yeah. And there you can sign up for again, trying to encapsulate that method of cooking, uh, my monthly meal plans. Uh, So I kind of combine, uh, you know, the meal prep with repurposing those prepped items and different uh, traditional foods. But I also to kind of give breaks from the traditional food. I also have um, my, I guess, my more quote unquote, modernized, simplified foods Mm. uh, using the same traditional flavors, but cooked in different ways. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. And I send those out every month.
0: Yeah, it's really they're really helpful. I really enjoy awesome. them. Yeah. So, yeah. um, so I think I think we've
1: gone, Is it? It's not
0: dark there, is it? I haven't prolonged your ah uh,
1: no I? no okay about forty five minutes. So yeah, okay. oh, <laughs> yeah.
0: good. Yeah. All right. Uh-huh. Well, thank you so yes. so much for
1: your time. No, thank you, Becky. It's been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking to you. So
0: I have to yeah. take care. Okay. Yeah. Thanks you too. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you all again for tuning in and making it to the end of the episode. I have linked to all of those things that we discussed in the show notes. I hope you'll check them out. I mainly do hope that you will subscribe to the Storied Recipe podcast, either in a podcast player, or if that's not convenient for you, subscribe to the newsletter where you'll get links to um, recipes, any giveaways, uh, and certainly episodes every single Friday morning. If you enjoyed this episode, would you please take a moment to share it with a family or friend member or to leave a review? If you're not sure how to leave a review, that's okay. Neither did I. And that's why I have a super handy little tool right there in the show notes. If you just click on um, the review the podcast link, it will take you to a tool that automatically figures out what is available to you on your phone. And you can easily leave a review um, using that tool. Next week, we have Zuza Zak on the podcast to speak about her Polish cookbook. It's a beautiful cookbook, and it's just perfect for spring as it really connects us to nature. It also connects with this week's theme on fasting and feasting and how adhering to nature's patterns maybe enables us to enjoy our food, enjoy and appreciate our food even more. I hope you'll tune in. I look forward to connecting with you then. In the meantime,
2: have a great week, my friends.